Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Understanding Conservation Agriculture and Carbon Management in Your No-Till Operation, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four annual ag events, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-4572. In this episode, retired USDA soil scientist from Morris, Minnesota, Don Rakoski outlines the connection between soil health principles and carbon management in the context of conservation agriculture and no-till farming. Rakoski discusses various cover crop characteristics as they affect biodiversity and relate to carbon production in soils, the properties and processes of nutrient cycling, and how conservation agriculture promotes a natural synergy between the organisms in a living biological system. He'll explain the role that living or dormant covers or dead biomass play as an energy source for soil biology. You can follow along with the podcast by downloading Don's corresponding PDF presentation. Without further ado, here is Don Rakowski. I was asked to talk about biodiversity in addition to the carbon part of it. And everybody knows I would talk about carbon no matter what they asked me to talk about. But uh, my friend Dick Whitman said it best. He said, make crop diversity match the environment. But I'd like to take just one word in that and make crop diversity match nature's diversity. And I hope you'll pick up on that through the rest of the talk. Another aspect of this diversity is I was trying to figure out how Dave Brandt picked 14 or 15 species to put in his cover crop mix. And I was trying to find out what was going on. He said, I looked at nature. And this morning in his session over there, he said he looked at his woodlot where there was no disturbance. And he counted between 16 and 18 different species. So he looked at Mother Nature, and Mother Nature was his teacher. And to me, that's a pretty powerful lesson. And I hope Dave was here to hear that because he has got more attention and has provided more information than anyone else in terms of getting cover crops on the land. And my mission today is to get you to think about carbon and biodiversity. I don't want to tell you what to do, but I want to tell you what to think about in making some of your management decisions, because there's a lot of fancy words that are related to carbon and biodiversity. From my perspective, sustainability and food security, it's all about carbon management. We have a hungry world. We have a threatened planet from environmental issues. 
We're all concerned about our children and grandchildren's future. And I think our one chance is what I call conservation agriculture. And we'll see more about that. This conservation agriculture system rests on our living soil and soil health principles that all depend on carbon. So carbon is key to this living system that we are trying to manage. So I repeat it again in, in focusing on the living aspects of the soil. I want you to think carbon because that's the primary nutrient source. And I want you to think diversity because that strengthens and balances the system and results in synergistic benefits that we normally don't account for. When I talk carbon and soil organic matter, I'm talking about the same thing. And I use them interchangeably. If you like soil organic matter, that's okay. You can talk about that. But I use the term carbon because it is the key element in about 10,000 different diverse chemical compounds that make up this soil organic matter. We call it organic matter because we don't know what to call it because of the mishmash of all the chemicals that are in it. And we have ways of calculating from carbon to organic matter and back and forth. So don't be as scared of the term carbon and hopefully get it in your vocabulary a little bit more because there's a specific element that we're trying to manage that so far has not been very important to us in, in many aspects. So when we consider this system as a living biological system, we have to have some curiosity about what makes it tick. And I've got this quote from Brian Jorgensen, no-till farmer over in South Dakota. And this was an earth shaker for me because this farmer understands what carbon's about. He said that carbon is the framework and the fuel of every living thing. Now, if that doesn't make it important for you, I don't know what does. Well, carbon is also the heart of soil health. And soil health has been a big program with respect to acceptance of some of these conservation techniques. And so when you have soil health conditions, we talk about no tillage or minimum soil disturbance to minimize the carbon loss. We also talk about cover crops and diverse rotations to maximize the carbon input. And this is what we're trying to do in these systems and why carbon is so important to us. So we can talk about cover crop cocktails. And I put the emphasis on that capital C, which is the symbol for carbon. And we're trying to maximize or increase the soil organic matter content through carbon cycling or carbon management. We need these carbon coverings for the soil 365 days a year. And in our neck of the woods, we have a lot of fall tillage and we get a lot of wind erosion from the freeze saw activities and the freezing drying activities that uh, results in real estate changing hands going downwind. But we can look at this as live crop biomass, as an active protective blanket for the soil, or we can look at it as dead crop residue as a passive protective blanket. So this plant biomass, it can be living, it can be dormant, it can be dead, or it can be applied in the form of compost or manure or some other form of organic matter. So it's very important to us, but what I want you to understand in all those four components, that material is about 45% carbon. And that's why carbon, at least, is important to me. 
So if we want to have a healthy soil biology, they've got to be nurtured and they've got to be fed. There's no question about that. But those healthy soil biology are very important to us in terms of cycling the carbon and cycling the nutrients that the next crop, the next generation, will need for adequate growth and adequate production. But maintaining that health also enables us to get stable aggregates in the soil. It results in nitrogen fixation when we put legumes in the cover crops. It enhances plant growth, it can improve water quality, and it can enhance infiltration, water flow, and water storage. It also recycles some of the carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere so we can continue this loop. And it results in some aspects of plant protection. So carbon, not only is it a nourishment for the soil biology, it's a form of fuel for the whole system that provides energy for some of these processes that we really don't understand yet. So from my perspective, carbon is the backbone of food security. Carbon comes into the system through the process of photosynthesis. That's nature's free source of energy that we in agriculture have to learn to manage appropriately. It's a free energy source that we must learn to maximize the efficiency of the, of the collection of that. Because it's used to feed the biology, it's used to feed us, it protects against soil erosion, it increases that nutrient cycling, and on and on through these other benefits that are important to us. And what I want to emphasize is carbon is a connector in our agricultural production systems. It brings together different components, just like those vertebrae in your back. Carbon enhances the soil health, which in turn affects human health. And these ecosystem services that are so important to society, it's one of the main drivers of that. So from my perspective, carbon is the capital C that starts conservation. So when you think about it, don't think about it as a separate entity. Thinking about it as a uh, connected and a connector for the different components in our agricultural production system. This whole process starts with the uh, solar energy that comes from the sun. And virtually all life on uh, the earth is powered by the energy through the process of photosynthesis. I want you to understand that plants are the main source of our food and energy uh, a generation from that. And so we have to take and, and utilize this resource as best we can. It's very important that we understand that. And so we have to start thinking about capturing carbon 365 days a year, because it's the only form of energy that we have on Earth. And you as agricultural producers must learn to manage that to capture solar energy and to uh, transform it into biochemical carbon energy, which is our food that feeds all life on Earth. And so we got to get maximum use out of those sunshine hours that we have. And starting with this carbon capture in the process of photosynthesis is pretty important to us. So carbon dioxide plus water vapor uh, comes together to form the sugars or the carbohydrates that are important to us. And this is that energy capture and conversion from solar energy to biochemical energy. 
The reverse of that process is taking that sugar and adding a little oxygen to it. We call that respiration, where that energy is released for us to do useful work when we digest those carbohydrates or whatever. And I show it as a relatively simple cycle, but I uh, assure you that it's very, very complex. And to use one of Dwayne Beck's uh, quotes, uh, the devil is in the details. So the plants are our main source of food and energy generation, and we have to manage them to optimize that and make it as efficient as possible. If we take a look at this carbon flow through the soil plant atmosphere system in a little different way, we take the energy from the sun, combine the water and, and uh, carbon dioxide to make the sugar. That sugar is transmitted down the plant stem. Some of it goes to the leaves, some of it goes to the grain, some of it goes to the roots. And out of the roots come, the root exudates are very important in terms of providing nutrition for the soil microbiology. And, and other soil fauna. But associated with this is nutrient cycling and carbon cycling that's an important part of the system. <clears throat> Going from the nutrient cycling through plant nutrition to food nutrition is most important to me because I need three meals a day. And so that's part of where that carbon is going. But another important aspect from an environmental perspective is the carbon cycling that contributes to ecosystem services. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So when we start off with that process from the sun all the way down through the um, food nutrition, we end up with four components of food, feed, fiber, and fuel. And when we take those and digest that food or utilize that food in terms of a process of respiration, the carbon dioxide is released to the atmosphere to go back and restart that cycle again. So it's important that you have some understanding of what's happening in that so that when you make management decisions, if somewhere along this chain of events you can make a difference to increase the efficiency, then I think we need to consider that. William Albrecht back in 1938 said that uh, organic matter functions mainly as it is decayed and destroyed. Its value lies in its dynamic nature. So when we take that carbon in the form of crop biomass, that's about 46% carbon, and let the bugs decompose it, the worms de digest it, we get carbon dioxide that's released to the atmosphere eventually, and we get nutrients released that's re released for the next crop. Ending up with soil organic matter, that's about 58% carbon. And the difference between 46 and 58 is what's important to us from the standpoint of nutrient cycling. So when we take a look at that crop biomass at 46% and soil organic matter at 58%, the difference of 12% represents this whole cadre of nutrients that are important to us. The carbon and the hydrogen and the oxygen and nitrogen um, most of those come from the atmosphere. But the other mineral nutrients, N, P, and K, are um, all important because it's released from that biomass, let available to the next crop, and trying to um, maintain sort of biofertility in our production system. So we have this large cadre of nutrients 
that's important to us. And virtually all of those nutrients are important in crop production. Some of them are macronutrients, which is large amounts, but a lot of them are micronutrients. And when a small amount has a big impact. And so part of the reason that we need biodiversity is to try to match this cadre of different nutrients that can be there in small amounts, but big effects. And there's some of them that I'm not that familiar with, but uh, they do have a significant effect on, on some of the quality of the food that we eat. So when we look at nature's resources, uh, I want you to understand that the sun is a resource for us. You already understand soil and water and air, but that air is a resource that has carbon dioxide in it that the plants take in. That air has 21% oxygen that also has nitrogen at 78% in it. So air is a pretty important resource. But I'd like to get you to think about two other types of resources. One is the human intellect. Putting our heads together, using our brains, is a resource that we've got to use in a positive way and to make smart and, and good decisions. The second one is biodiversity. And I'm trying to understand biodiversity because it's something that we have to think about in terms of assembling different characteristics of the plant, different characteristics of the system, and putting them all together. And so if we take a look at these six resources, they're pretty important in terms of establishing food security. Biodiversity enables sustainability from my perspective. It provides some resilience. It provides some opportunities for synergistic relationship. It provides some opportunities for profit. So the role of carbon in biodiversity in these conservation agriculture systems is very important. And the whole system revolves around carbon management. The carbon sort of increases stability in the system. It increases the storage in the soil in terms of energy and, and nutrition for that. It can reduce the pollution and, and the leaching from the soil to the groundwater. It can also increase the resistance to exotic species in terms of um, giving some competition. It generally increases the productivity of the system. It can result in more effective and efficient nutrient capture. And it can somehow decrease the, the susceptibility to diseases. These are some of the biological implications of what carbon does for biodiversity. So to me, biodiversity is an element of sustainability and it's necessary for harmony and stability within our, our systems. Solar energy capture is necessary as long as biologically possible. In our neck of the woods, when we have a month or so of with occasional nights of 20 below Fahrenheit, not much is gonna happen biologically. But with a little biological uh, emphasis on the biodiversity, we can at least grow some residue to protect the soil during the off seasons. But we also need diversity to cope with spatial and temporal variability. I want diversity to push the growing season a little farther into the fall and to stretch the planting season a little earlier into the spring. And by finding the right crops and developing a management strategy, I think we can push those boundaries just a little farther so that we get more 
biological activity for a longer period of time. This diversity helps spread some of the risks. It increases this potential for the synergistic relationships. It can control pests and diseases. It can also help us handle some of the climate extremes. And it can increase the total productivity in the system in a natural way. And it helps us do that as uh, enables us to try to mimic nature in many of the ways that we're trying to do this. We'll rejoin Don in a moment, but I wanted to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is the title sponsor of each of our four annual ag events, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-4572. Now let's get back to Don Rakowski's presentation, Understanding Conservation Agriculture and Carbon Management in Your No-Till Operation. The biodiversity uh, is, is pretty important. And I borrowed some data from David Tillman. Uh, he's an ecologist at the University of Minnesota. And on this chart, we have the plant biomass on the left-hand axis versus the number of species in that mix of species that are put on there. And you look at it, it rises relatively quickly, but then starts to plateau between 10 and 20 species. And where did David Brandt pick it up? With 14 or 15 species. And how he got that, now I know, is, is he observed what nature was telling him. So there's a, a wide range, but it does plateau. And so when you have maximum biomass in that system, from my perspective, that means maximum carbon captured, maximum carbon to manage whatever way necessary to optimize the yields and provide stability to the system. When you take a look at the similar data for looking at different functional groups, and a functional group could be, for example, the, the legumes to fix nitrogen, or we could have the, uh, the warm season grasses to be carbon crops to maximize the carbon input, or we could have brassicas to do a certain thing in terms of controlling the thing. And when you plot the plant biomass versus the number of these functional groups, it happens to balance out between two and four in terms of plateauing. And so uh, this also gives us some information on how many different functions we should be working on in that cover crop mix. So these cover crop cocktails are important, and it just could be just a big mix of whatever's gone in there. And so the biodiversity that comes with those cocktails results in a stable and, and workable carbon content and nutrients released. And I'd like to think that these cover crop cocktails might be called synergy crops because bringing together the individual benefits into a community of crops where the synergistic effects to subsequent crops are greater than the sum of the individual contribution. 
So my definition of synergy is where we have one plus one equal three in terms of the impact on the system. And that's a freebie from Mother Nature if we learn how to do it right. So another example of this is shown on the next slide where you can start off with a, with a monoculture, which is not so good, but then you can have cover crops or alternate crops all the way through that list till we get down to Dwayne Beck's stacked rotations, 10 different species stacked out for five or 10 years or whatever. And again, it depends on the objective of using cover crops in your operation. And if you want that diversification, you have to start thinking about what you're doing. We have to start planning and thinking ahead in some of our discussion groups. You just don't snap your finger and do it now because of herbicide issues and, and other issues with respect to the, to the climate. And again, the devil is in the detail in making some of these decisions. One example of the uh, diversity, importance of diversity, is shown in this nutrient content data from 17 cover crops in Brazil. Our friend Adamir Caligari has taken and evaluated the nutrient content of this 17 different cover crops in, in Brazil. And I use the example of phosphorus because everybody's familiar with phosphorus. And for this group of cover crops, the value went from a value of 0.3 to a value of 0.05% in terms of nutrient uh, concentration, a six-fold variation. So you have a wide range of options to either put a lot of phosphorus in or put a medium amount of phosphorus in or put very little phosphorus in, and you can select the, the species that's going to do that for you. Well, you have to understand that there's about 18 nutrients that are required by the plant, and when you start multiplying 18 nutrients by all of those variability, uh, it becomes very, very complex. Zinc is an example of a micronutrient, and on the y-axis is expressed in parts per million, and you can see that the maximum value was 66 parts per million with the yellow lupin, and then down to eight parts per million with the lupin, uh, or excuse me, field pea. An eight-fold variation, and again, you got this whole range of possibilities that you can select from depending on your perceived need for zinc in the system or not in the system or whether it's important. And this is why diversity somehow puts together this mishmash and nature sort of works on letting everything happen the best way and the most efficient way possible. And this is a, one of the, the benefits or excuses for using the word biodiversity. I wanna emphasize the importance of the multi-species cover crop. The blue, the items listed in the blue are all directly related to carbon. And so there's a lot of them, partly because of my biases, but partly because there's a lot of information to support the importance of carbon coming from the multi-species cover crops. There's a few things that I don't think come directly from that, but the, that's not the point. So the bottom line from my perspective is in, in this system, uh, conservation agriculture system, the bottom line is a synergistic simplicity of minimum soil disturbance, which minimizes the carbon loss and the soil loss. And then the use of these diverse rotations and cover crop mixes 
that maximizes soil coverage and protection and carbon input. And these are the two main things that we need to consider to maintain the uh, diversity in the system and protect it, and to maintain the regeneration benefits that are in the conservation agriculture system. And so when we talk about no-till and cover crops, this is a one-sentence explanation in my mind that uh, identifies and explains the importance of the, that concept. So carbon is pretty important to it, so in our systems, we want to minimize the loss and we want to maximize the input. Tillage <coughs> disrupts the natural cycles on <coughs> our systems. I want you to understand that the water, the carbon, and the nitrogen cycle are closely intertwined. And when you disturb one, you disturb the other. And so these are the three main cycles that we have to manage in agriculture. And when you do an intensive tillage event, it not only disrupts the carbon cycle, but it disrupts the water and the nitrogen cycle. So intensive tillage sort of disrupts the properties and processes, while physical, chemical, and biological, and just upsets the apple cart for everything we're trying to do for that living biological system. So from my perspective, uh, intensive tillage is the number one environmental enemy in, in production agriculture because it promotes this organic matter oxidation and, and soil degradation. So I did a little bit of research trying to characterize the tillage-induced carbon dioxide loss. What, uh, one of the challenges is getting people to understand that there's carbon dioxide coming out of the soil. And so I use those flickering flames to represent a slow oxidation, a slow burning of the carbon where it's combined with see, uh, oxygen and goes off as, as carbon dioxide. Now carbon dioxide is colorless, it's odorless, it's tasteless, and you not, cannot perceive that it's there. But if you look at the tillage implement on the right side, which you can't see the tractor, but you see that cloud of dust, you can see that dust, you can feel that dust, you can taste that dust, and I'm gonna convince you that that cloud of dust is analogous to a cloud of carbon dioxide that goes out. There is a big burp of carbon dioxide that goes out with intensive tillage. You can perceive that there is a problem. Anyway, tillage is pretty uh, degrading on our system. Um, the tilled soils are vulnerable to raindrop impact when you have bare soil. You know what happens when the raindrop hits a bare soil. It has an effect on the water and temperature and there's uh, diversity loss. The water extremes can go from wet to dry. There's biodiversity loss. There's increased runoff, decreased infiltration, more evaporation, increased leaching, and, and increased pollution. Tillage is just not very good from, from an environmental perspective. But I'm also one of, and, and um, get you a little bit up to speed on what intensive tillage does to the living system, the soil biology. Intensive tillage basically butchers the biology in the soil. It cuts and slices and dices the soil and blends and mixes and inverts the soil, creating havoc for the soil biology. And if we look at the soil on the left, it's a little bit exaggerated, but it's a natural system. There's a small amount of carbon dioxide coming off. 
One pass with a Momor plow down to 10 inches, we get this big burp of carbon dioxide that comes out. And if we use a secondary tillage on the extreme right, breaking up the aggregates and the clods, we get another small burp of carbon dioxide coming out of the system. What is that doing to the soil biology? Well, if you've ever pulled a tillage tool through Minnesota, and this one other picture is from Denmark, those seagulls are out there for a reason. And what happens is that the intensive tillage opens the soil, uh, the all-you-can-eat buffet for the birds and the microbes. They're there picking up the chopped up worms and grubs and other insects that are brought to the surface. And it's very easy picking for them. So this is an, a, a visual representation of how that soil biology is upset with intensive tillage. So from my perspective, tillage is a biotic disturbance. And I like to talk about the turmoil of tillage. If we look at the soil as a natural living system that contains a lot of life, that when tilled intensively, it's dramatically changed. And it can be considered analogous to a human reaction to a combination of an earthquake, an asteroid impact, a forest fire, a tsunami, a hurricane, and a tornado all rolled into one perturbation event. And if that happened to you in your house two or three times a year, you would not be very happy, you would not be very efficient, you would want to find some other, way, other place to live and carry out your, your life's activities. So if you, if you look at the living system and what tillage does to that and use this little bit of an analogy, um, you'll have some feeling for what it is. The problem is the only thing that we can see that's really damaged is some of the larger animals and, and the earthworm and night crawlers. We can't see what happens to the, to the bacteria and the fungi, so we don't really think too much about that because it doesn't visually connect with us. But we have to understand that that soil, as a living biological system, is composed of many, many critters. And in Minnesota, we have gophers. We've got night crawlers and insects and microfauna and microflora. We've got actinomycetes, bacteria, and algae. And if you sum up that soil fauna and microbial action in the soil, it's equivalent to grazing about two African elephants per acre. And if you understand that those African elephants each will eat about 300 pounds of hay a day, you get an, impress, uh, an impression of how much biological activity is taking place to digest and decompose 300 pounds of hay per elephant per day. And I credit Jerry Hatfield at the Tilth Lab for this analogy. There's other people talking about how many cows is on there and, that are grazing on top of the soil versus the, the ones that are, the, the critters that are grazing in the soil. But understanding that all these people, the critters are there working for us, doing this nutrient cycling and all the other processes that are important to us. And why do we want to go in and beat the tar out of them with an intensive tillage event? So there's things that we can do in terms of trying to enhance the synergistic relationship. And one of the things we can do is using tap-rooted cover crops that will send the roots down five or six feet. And what we can do then is have the earthworm 
he will find this food tunnel, follow that food tunnel down to a greater depth, spreading some of the worm slime from the side of it so that the microbes on the wall of that biopore can have a little extra nutrition. And so it will go deeper. So the worm has cleaned out some of the biomass. The next year, another root will find that easy path in that biopore and get progressively deeper into the profile so that water can go deeper, the nutrients can be, a larger volume can be uh, extracted from in terms of increasing the, the volume of accessibility. And if this process is repeated, ultimately you can get down to the maximum rooting depth and the maximum penetration of the earthworms to increase the volume of water, or the volume of soil to store more water and make access to, uh, enable access to the various types of nutrient. But the secret in this whole thing is you cannot destroy the continuity of those biopores. They've got to come to the surface so you can get infiltration. And one tillage event, be it ever so shallow, blocks off and cuts those biopores to disrupt this whole system. So I think that we should be trying to farm a little deeper to get a little more water available, a little more nutrients. And so these biopores, um, by, uh, with the cover crop roots and the earthworms working in, in synchrony can get us a deeper rooting. And the, the example I use, we get, we get about one inch of available water per foot of soil in, in Minnesota. If we can double that root system from three to six foot depth through this worm and root tap root interaction, we can get additional three inches of water stored in that profile. And this says nothing about the extra nutrients that are available in that lower three feet of the soil. So, plant carbon is our greatest water management tool. It increases infiltration, transpiration, decreases erosion, and all of these benefits for us. And good carbon management is required for maximum water use efficiency. A couple examples from our colleagues from Nebraska have shown that if you have a mulch, it can save about three inches of water from evaporating. It also can result in about three inches of water going infiltration that doesn't run off. The soil organic matter of increasing at 1% can provide an additional two inches of water. And the cover crop access going another three foot deep in the profile because of that synergistic relationship, another three inches. And this is just measured over a six month cropping season. And each of those by themselves may not be such a big deal, but when you total up 11 inches of water means a lot to the guys in the Pacific Northwest, to the guys in Nebraska and Kansas and some of the drier areas. So the sum of these small amounts do add up to be significant when we have good carbon management. So if we want to compare an agricultural system, a conventional agriculture system with intensive tillage versus a conservation agriculture system, we can look at the size of the arrows. The yellow arrows are for the conventional system and the blue arrows for the conservation ag system. With the conventional, we get more evaporation. With the transpiration, the conservation ag gives more transpiration, more infiltration, less runoff. We get more biopores with the conservation egg system, minimum soil disturbance. We get more water storage and more plant available water. 
all resulting in increased water use efficiency. So working with Mother Nature to improve soil health, we have to start thinking about what we can do. And I use this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, as to methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own method. Conservation agriculture's nature way, we want minimum soil disturbance, we want maximum carbon input and retention, and we want to maintain biodiversity. So we look at these three principles, and they are overlapping and integrated, important, and they, they sort of work around and evolve around the carbon cycle. We also have the local complementary ag practices that are unique to a particular geographic location. They allow you to incorporate livestock into the system and whatever other little things that you might be doing with that. So conservation agriculture is these three principles that um, are trying to be managed on a continuous basis. The other point that I want to make is that there is this integration and synchrony between these three principles that are all based on conservation agriculture as the foundation for global food security. Conservation agriculture systems are also cost effective. Conservation agriculture is profitable for farmers for all the decrease in input cost. Fuel, diesel fuel can be decreased by 50%. Labor can be decreased by 50%. On and on with fertilizer decreased by 50% if you've got legumes in the rotation. Pesticides even more than that. Gabe Brown doesn't use any pesticides anymore. And water management can be enhanced. So all of these are decreased input costs that are important to us. That says nothing about the environmental quality for all of us. Conservation agriculture has avoided costs of repairing the soil erosion and the runoff. It, the costs are, are avoided for the pollution issues. The environmental costs of greenhouse gas emission are avoided, and the climate extremes are avoided as part of that. It's got to be a win-win situation, a win as a profit for the farmer, and a win for society with all these environmental benefits that are there. The wagon wheel is agriculture's wheel of fortune. The spokes represent individual environmental or ecosystem benefits that emanate from the axle as carbon through the conservation agriculture systems. We take a look at that wagon wheel and we start off with the carbon coming into the, as the axle, then it is, works its way through the conservation agriculture system into each of those spokes which becomes an individual environmental benefit. Our soils are our living systems, and so we have these living biological partners that enable this carbon and nutrient cycling synergies. There's synergistic benefits that come out of that. And from my perspective, soil degradation is caused by one word, that's tillage. Soil recovery is accomplished by one word, that's carbon. Soil health maintenance is accomplished by one word, carbon. And with that, I'll end with my cartoon character, Carby Carbon, who asks you to keep your carbon footprint small and manage carbon for ecosystem services. I hope you will be a mega voice for carbon management and have a little better understanding of the importance of biodiversity. 
with that, amen. Thanks to Don Rakowski for this illuminating look at carbon as it pertains to biodiversity and soil health in a no-till operation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-till e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.